Hi listeners, welcome to Talks with Together We Care. My name is Rory Wilson and I am one of the founding members of Together We Care, Fallon Hills. For those of you who don't know, September is Suicide Prevention Month, and this episode pays as a tribute to that. With that said, I will not only be covering the importance of suicide awareness, but how black mental health is impacted by various factors, including two of the most prominent influences this year, racism and social media. Now, I realize that suicide isn't exactly a topic that people want to talk about, let alone listen to. Most of us have been affected by suicide in one way or another, and I understand if it is hard for some of you to listen to this episode. It's not easy listening to how your friends and family become statistics and you just continue on, but that's a part of suicide and mental health awareness. And that's why I wanted to do this episode today, to help spread awareness, not just about suicide, but also the many effects on black mental health. Before I start, I want to remind everyone that every person is different and that not all the major signs and symptoms that present themselves are the same in each case. And although I could probably talk about suicide and mental health for hours, I'm going to just briefly cover the main factors that influence black mental health. I would also like to define two words that are treated differently, suicide and suicidal. Suicide means to injure oneself with the intent of dying. Suicidal is feeling deeply unhappy or depressed and likely to commit suicide. Some of the things that I've noticed in various institutions of society, including academic and professional workspaces, is that suicide is typically something that many people are surprised at. And it's not always other people's fault that they didn't realize that their peers struggled with mental illness. But when a person acts or behaves suicidal, there is also the stigma that surrounds them, labeling them as attention-seeking. And I just want to clear the air before I get into the different influences on mental health. People who commit suicide or think about committing suicide are not attention-seeking. For whatever reason, many feel burdened and are in constant pain. And committing suicide is not a way to yell at the world. Why weren't you paying attention? It's more of, I'm sorry that I wasted your time and effort, but I can't take this anymore. And for a lot of people, that's kind of what gets lost in translation. Especially if a person has never thought about committing suicide or felt that agonizing pain that suicide people experience. I'm going to get into this more towards the end of the episode, but because so many people do not know the warning signs of suicide, or someone that is struggling with mental health, many people don't understand why a person chose to commit suicide. And again, it's not their fault, but we, as a society, need to educate ourselves so that we're prepared and knowledgeable on these various warning signs. So, let's start. In the general population, that includes people from all racial and ethnic backgrounds. Men are three times more likely to commit suicide than women. The CDC reported that in 2017, suicide was the third leading cause of death for black males between the ages of 1 and 19, and the fourth leading cause of death for black males between the ages of 20 and 44. And although white youth are dying at a higher rate, suicide by black youth is increasing much faster than any other race or ethnicity. According to the USA Today, black youth of 13 years old and under are two times more likely to commit suicide than their white counterparts. 
let's talk about the different factors that invoke mental illness. Anything from not growing up with a male role model, being a single parent, family members that struggle with substance abuse, and their own mental health are some of the factors that can influence mental health on a micro level. On the other hand, things like environment, access to education, and finance can influence mental health on a macro level. To put all of this into perspective for a moment, many racially and ethnically diverse neighborhoods are located in environments that are polluted from nearby factories and chemical plants. A good example of this is Cancer Alley in Louisiana, which is an extension of about 85 miles in which petrochemical plants and oil refineries border the Mississippi River. Residents living along the stretch are 50 times more likely to get cancer than the average American. Pollution from particulate matter, gases, metallic, and organic matter can cause chronic stress, hinder normal cognitive behavior, and even increase the risk of dementia and schizophrenia in both children and adults. Anxiety and depression are also found to be an increased risk when exposed to these different pollutants. And if you listen to the second episode of our podcast, the Maricopa County COVID-19 talk, I briefly touched upon the racial and ethnic wage gap. As a refresher, for every $1 a white household makes, a black household will make only 59 cents. Yes, money can't buy happiness, but money can buy groceries. It can cover healthcare costs, secondary education, a house in an environment that's not going to increase your risk of getting cancer, or an apartment in an area with clean water, and so, so much more. And these are just a few factors. There's still room to talk about how young black men and boys drop out of school and many live in their neighborhoods in fear of being arrested for looking like a criminal. Before I dive into the conversation of police brutality and the effects on mental health, there are different aspects of racism that people of color, especially black people, have to endure on a daily basis. Whether these racist remarks are overt or covert, every word you say makes an impact. Microaggressions impact mental health just like systemic racism does. I want to briefly talk about an episode of NPR's Code Switch called A Decade of Watching Black People Die with Rolling Stone senior writer Jamil Smith. If you haven't listened to this episode or even the podcast, I would definitely recommend it because it covers what I'm about to talk about much more deeply. In 2015, Jamil Smith wrote an essay, What Does Seeing Black Men Die Do For You? This essay is still, just five years later, completely relevant. For starters, just like how the video of George Floyd's death went viral on social media this past May, Jamil Smith discusses George Holliday's video, of the brutal beating of Rodney King by police in 1991 that went viral and shocked America, with a particular revelation from white Americans. So many videos and pictures that are filmed in the moment with the intention of being used as evidence have become endless hashtags on social media. Even though it doesn't seem like it, these hashtags are doing much more harm than good. I'm talking specifically to my white listeners right now. In a place that is supposed to connect friend to friend and family to family, black people have been watching an endless circulation of violent videos and morbid pictures. And this isn't just about the average black person who sees their white friends and co-workers posting these brutal videos on the internet. 
social media is supposed to be for people 13 years of age and older, but I think we all know at least one nine-year-old that knows how to use an iPhone better than we do. Black kids are watching people that look like them die on all screens. Young kids that, when I was their age, I was most worried about what my mom was making for dinner are overly aware of how racism was built into institutional systems. They get older and grow into teenagers and young adults and have the lingering thought that they or someone they know could be the next person whose name becomes a hashtag. These videos and pictures are circulating all aspects of the internet, and black people don't need the recurrent reminder. White people... Many of us see a video or a picture and are just shocked because seeing a black man under an officer's knee is unheard of. Or we have heard of it and we think that we're spreading awareness by posting these traumatizing videos. We tag our friends and family in posts and send morbid pictures to just call out our racist co-workers. But this isn't spreading awareness. This is not how we are allies for black people. These videos that show black people being beat by officers while their kids watch from the car and walking home from school are good as evidence. It is good to film these horrific acts by officials and other white people. But even then, what has been done to change our actual systems? And this is kind of the main point of Jamil Smith's essay. Not much has been done to protect black people through legislation. These videos of brutality, coined the name trauma porn, have been circulating the news, media, and other platforms since the late 70s. And sure, national and even global protests have been sparked by these videos, leading to some laws here and there. But it has been nearly 50 years since white people started caring about brutality against black people. And just this past August, Jacob Blake was shot seven times in the back with his three children watching from the car. And the officers involved have been placed on just administrative leave in spite of the video that went viral showing him being shot. And we keep posting videos of shootings and beatings and of black people dying, like those of George Floyd and Jacob Blake and so many others, all in the hopes that something will be done by our government. And with what little has been done, we fail to recognize that our black friends and co-workers and neighbors are seeing these videos that are just constantly re-traumatizing for them. As we watch these videos over and over on the internet, we also have to take into account that this is all happening while people are protesting in the streets and being tear-gassed and shot with rubber bullets, all the while a pandemic is going on. A pandemic which disproportionately affects black people. Just like there are many different people, there are also many stigmas about different people. For instance, if you listen to the third episode of our podcast, The Strong Black Woman Talk, Sharifa discussed how the stigma of black women being independent and strong from their countless experiences is very detrimental to black women's social and cultural image. And then there's the stigma around men being indestructible, labeling them as weak if they talk about their emotions. Practicing self-care, focusing on their own mental health is seen as emasculating. Black youth learn from a young age that they are completely different from all the other kids. 
Their hair texture and skin color make them easy targets for name calling and victims of bullying. And black youth do not only struggle with racism, but with personal relationships. Some grow up with single parents, and some grow up hiding their sexuality or gender from their family because of the presence of homophobia. Lack of quality transportation, lack of insurance, high costs, limited mental health care sources, and low income and diverse communities are other factors that affect black people when considering seeking help for their mental health. And many individuals can't even find a quality behavioral health professional. Not necessarily because of transportation or finance, but because many professionals cannot properly address their cultural needs. There are not that many mental health care professionals that identify as Black or African American. In fact, Black people make up less than 2% of behavioral health professionals in the U.S. And since racism greatly affects a person's mental health, many Black people choose not to seek help from professionals because of how they may misunderstand their experiences with racism and cannot appropriately address their mental health needs. So, I'm at the portion of this episode where I talk about solutions and ways to support those who are suicidal. But I can't properly give you solutions when you don't even know the signs of suicide. Mental illness and signs of suicide do present themselves differently in all people. With that said, some common signs include talking about wanting to commit suicide, dangerous or self-harm behavior, socially withdrawn from loved ones, Increased substance or alcohol use, behaving recklessly, talking hopelessly about the future, expressing self-hatred, and many others. And the thing about these signs of suicide is that none of them are taught in school. I mean, in some schools, teachers will brisk over the topic of suicide during health class, but still fail to address suicidal behavior. This also relates to the myth that suicide is spontaneous. In some cases, suicide is a spontaneous act, an immediate thought, but most of the time, people think deeply about committing suicide before acting on it. So one of the major things that more people need to start advocating for is teaching mental health classes in school. When we feel like we're getting sick, we can easily recognize whether we're getting the flu or the common cold because we all know the signs and the symptoms. And just like we all know the basic warning signs for these short-term illnesses, we need to know the signs and symptoms for depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, and all others that can lead to suicidal thoughts and behavior. We need to start advocating more loudly and more clearly for mental health in the education system. We need to know the signs for ourselves and for the ones we care about. Before COVID-19 hit the nation, U.S. Representative Bonnie Watson Coleman, who established the CBC's Emergency Task Force on Black Youth Suicide and Mental Health, introduced the Pursuing Equity in Mental Health Act of 2019 last December. This would help combat the rising suicide rate in Black youth. And for those who are looking for therapists and psychologists, there are so many apps these days that allow for remote consultation. The top three rated mental health apps are Talkspace, BetterHelp, and Teen Counseling, 
which allow their clients to consult via text, phone call, and FaceTime. There are many other resources for Black people to find behavioral health professionals that can adequately meet their cultural needs. And there's so many social media influencers that are licensed psychologists that discuss Black mental health, which you can find by looking at our recent posts from this past Wednesday on Instagram and Facebook. As Ren Sean Miller, founder of Yo Stress, said, No matter how much the world makes you question your worthiness, your importance, and your power, you deserve the ability to live and thrive. Seek help if and when you need to as you continue to face whatever challenges are put in front of you. For those of you who don't know me, I am white. And I'm also 19 without any sort of degree in psychology. So if you really want to learn more deeply about black mental health, not only do you need to learn from the professionals, you need to be willing to listen to podcasts by black people, read books by black authors, and even scroll through some Instagram threads by black influencers. You need to listen to what black people are saying is harmful. And not just the few things that I covered during this episode today. Thank you so much for taking some time today to listen to this episode. Make sure to visit our website, twcfountainhills.weebly.com, and follow us on social media. If you have any questions about anything I've talked about today, be sure to leave a review on our podcast. The National Suicide Prevention Hotline is available to you 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255. You can reach the Crisis Text Line by texting TALK to 741-741 in capital letters. My name is Rory Wilson, representing Together We Care Fountain Hills. Thank you, and have a wonderful rest of your day.